I just want to start with a question for you to think through as we get going here. Uh, what do you value in life? I recently found through a tax assessment um, and talking with conversations, uh, having conversations with people in my street who sold their house recently or maybe they're getting ready to sell their house and similar to square footage as my house that actually we're going to turn a pretty good dollar if we ever to sell our house in our neighborhood. So that's valuable to me. I've also been fully aware through uh, Kelly, Kelly Blue Book that the cool silver Honda Accord 2004 that I keep driving around is actually going down in value, but not in my eyes. But I do have some golf clubs. I love to golf. I've got some old hickory shafted kind of ancient golf clubs, and they're maintaining as I, as I follow the market on those. What, what do you value? Uh, I did learn recently that Halloween masks have no face value. I value good humor. Can I drop a few more on you? I've been reading about this book about anti-gravity, and it's impossible to put down. <laughs> All right, one more. I'd tell you a chemistry joke, but I, I don't know if I'd get much of a reaction. All right. You can use those, or you can not use those. <laughs> Whether things are depreciating or things are appreciating, homes, cars, hobby, equipment, things are worthwhile to us individually. And, and somewhat is subjective. I mean, I, we have our own subjective standards of things that we hold valuable. So let's think about some material things, some things that maybe uh, might be uh, special to you that are you, tangible, maybe that new bike or that new laptop you got, or, or maybe your family pet, maybe just your family. Uh, how about that special gift from a friend? Do you still have, like I do, an A from that professor? I've got that paper still in his comments. What are some things that you have that are valuable to you? Maybe a purity ring from your parents, maybe a family heirloom, maybe something, a gift from your kids when they were in kindergarten. How about some immaterial things that you value? Air? <laughs> Time? How about integrity? Your name? Do you value the memories you have with those closest friends when you got tattoos together? Or, or that proposal, the wedding day, maybe that anniversary? What are some things that are valuable to you? The reason I'm asking this is because uh, how, what we view about material and immaterial things actually can turn into be defining moments for us, things that mean a lot to us. That, so what are some experiences that bring value to you? Uh, maybe a short-term mission trip, maybe that family vacation, maybe landing that job. Some, th some things that have been defining to you, the birth of that child or maybe the new birth of a friend in Christ. Uh, my daughter's had some healing in her body. Is that valuable to her? You bet. How about you? What about touching the blue turf at the BSU Stadium, Albertsons? Have you touched that yet? Is that an experience that's going to be valuable, that's going to be defining to you, or do you not? Oh, I don't care about that. <laughs> To what degree would you say material, immaterial things define you for good or bad? And we're all defined by things. Things bring value to our life whether we initiated that and we had control of getting to that or we were victims of that. Things define us, things that maybe we're not asking for. Here's kind of where I want to start. As a Christian, your sense of worth, who you are, is, 
is the single most important ingredient to what you will do. I'm not talking about the job you get or your occupation or your profession. I'm talking about kingdom contribution. What you do for Christ is dependent solely on how you view your relationship with Christ and him defining you, him being the point of value. Our world's philosophy tells you a lot of other things, that you have no intrinsic value. The world around us says some things, however, in your life, from a biblical perspective, if you, get, if you were to get shoulder to shoulder with the God that created you, the God that designed you, if you could see yourself from his angle, standing by him and looking at you, you would know you were formed in your mother's womb, not by accident, but by intent and by purpose, with meaning and value. That God of the Bible meticulously crafted you to be very unique from anybody else not just now, but in history from here and in the past. I mean, the iPhone and Samsung phones tell you that. Your thumbprint matters and guards everything that's special, and nobody else has that. So you do have intrinsic value. And the substitutionary death of Jesus, get this, historically, 2,000 years ago, what happened then on the timeline of life 2,000 years ago actually defined you before you drew your first breath? You have intrinsic value as an image bearer, as a human designed by God before you were even a thought by your parents. By appropriating that purifying work of Jesus and his blood, he cleanses you of a bad conscience of the sins that you've committed here. He was cursed so he would claim you and clean you and connect you to God. That is valuable. But what we do is we imprison ourselves, I think, when we buy into the lies of our culture and the worldview that's around us and we listen to Satan's whisper in our ear where he says such things as broken things have lost their value, don't you know? Imperfect things are disposable. You are worth less. You're beyond repair. You're flawed without hope. Boy, we listen to that enough and we swallow that line enough we start comparing ourselves and we grow insecure and we grow a bit angry with ourselves and we can become careless with ourselves and irresponsible and boy that is the heart of narcissism and Satan loves to do that but if we feel that way about ourselves we will not draw near to him we'll actually repel from him in shame and guilt are talking about God if we buy into those lies we will not worship we will be so ungrateful to him and hard-hearted. If we buy into those lies that we are garbage and we're nothing, we will not be brave for God. We will instead be pensive and timid. We will be hesitant. Here's the truth. We are broken. <laughs> we are in need of restoration. We are weak and we're fragile. Our bodies are terminal, if you didn't know that. Our souls aren't. And we may think that you're not worth anything and you're disposable, but God would beg to differ. And so from a Christian perspective, from a Christian worldview of worth, that's really at the heart of this book of Ephesians. It's smack dab right in the middle of the book, this idea that you and your identity transformed, transpositioned by Christ. He redeemed you, and so therefore what, who you are defines what you do. It is right in the middle of this, of this book defining you. Your worth is anchored deep in Christ. I know from Ben's message last week that he mentioned in Christ and all the cognates of that, in Jesus, in Jesus Christ, in Lord Jesus, in the Lord, whatever those phrases are in Ephesians. There's 34 of those. Paul wants to get it driven in your head almost six times 
per chapter in this book, you in Christ are valuable and worth something. I had a Starbucks appointment this week, and it was early and had about an hour between my next Starbucks appointment right there. I just stayed there, and I thumbed through in my phone Ephesians. I was just reading through it. I thought, what are the descriptions of Jesus? I found 30 just real fast. Can I just read them to you? You can find them. The text is right there in your Bible. He's the anointed king. He is master. He laid earth's foundations. He is the agent of our adoption. He's called beloved God. He is our sacrifice. He's the center of God's plan, and he's the culmination of God's plan. He sealed us in the spirit. He raised us back to life. He's seated in heaven's throne. He's in charge of everything, and he's the final word. He's the ruler of the church. He's present with us. He embraced you when you were dead in sin. He's the source of your salvation. He's the purpose of your life. He shed his blood. He united insiders with outsiders and vice versa. He repealed Moses' law. He's our access to the Father. He's the foundation of this thing called a new temple. He is God's executor of this mystery. He's extravagant in every dimension. He is head of the church. He's distributor of the spirit. He's the bridegroom of his bride, the church. He is head over heels in love with his bride and he's stronger than the devil his authority is worth living under and when you do live under his authority you find worth his voice is the one to listen to he becomes the best standard for your self-worth and affirmation so be really careful be really careful with this self-degrading and self-talk when you look in the mirror be really careful buying into the philosophy that you're just accidental-like. Be really careful thinking that as a Christian, you're inferior, less than, that you don't count in our society, that you have no contribution to our society to advance it, that the church really has lost its place in the world. Be really careful. These are the very things that Paul writes to that church in Ephesus, guarding them, helping them, reminding them that they are relevant today. My purpose this morning with a conversation with Bryn starting back in last March, I knew where he was going and we talked about this Ephesian stuff. And my assignment today that Bryn asked me is, is, is daunting. It's, it's a way to kind of just introduce the book to you. And I'm excited for the journey you're going to be in for the next several months through the book of Ephesians. It's an awesome book. Maybe you would say it's my favorite book. It's one of those things that I, I'm truly honored and a bit humbled to assist in, in you getting started in this and get out of the blocks and getting out of the gate. I'm, I'm privileged to be here. Thanks, Bryn, for that invite. I love being here. We're a part of Eagle Christian Church, but Nell and I love being here with you guys anytime we get the opportunity. And so I just want to talk to you a little bit about this letter. Six chapters, 2,596 words. In fact, you can read it about 30 minutes. You can listen to it in 30 minutes. I'd encourage you to listen to it as though you're a first century Ephesian Christian. You don't have your Bible on your phone or your, or your hand. Uh, it, you don't have it you can turn to. Just listen to it. Have it read to you. Get the Bible app on your phone. I've been listening to it the last t couple of weeks and prep for this. It's really good just to hear it again and let it just kind of cascade over my mind and my heart. Before we get to the contents, though, what I want to do is I want to set the stage a little bit. The historic backdrop is very important. There's a lot of tapestry in this, in this city that we need to get. Otherwise, you will have no able, ability to make sense of what the contents of the book is. So we need to bear in mind that this is written by a, by a Jewish rabbi who is a Roman citizen and a Christian kingdom worker, and his life was radically changed, and we need to hear what his intent was in this book. It's really important to set the stage because it was written to a church in an ancient area called Asia Minor. That's modern-day Western Turkey. 
under the Roman Empire, which is way different than, than our Constitution and how USA works. It's really important to get the b- backdrop because it, it's deeply influenced by paganism. Without some of that information, I don't know if the structure of the book, I don't know if the order of the book, I don't know if the contents of the book will make any difference in your life. In fact, it'll keep you one-dimensional in it. It'll be what you think it to be. But I think we need to set the stage so you can hear what Paul's intent was originally for those who would have heard it, how they would have heard it. You can take a few notes down if you want. Got a few slides here. But I want to set it up this way. Paul, who had that radical conversion, laid the foundation of the church. I know Bryn laid that out for you last week. He started this when he was on his second missionary journey. Here's a map to kind of show you in that Mediterranean area where Ephesus is in relation to other places. He had to make a quick trip over to Jerusalem. And so he leaves Aquila and Priscilla in charge of the church while he's, there, while he's gone. For a couple of years, he's in Jerusalem. And then he returns to Ephesus on his third missionary journey. He spends three years in Ephesus. He knows these people. He taught at a school called Tyrannus. Uh, where he preached for several years. He faced a lot of opposition while he's preaching Christ. But from that school, it says all of Asia heard the word of God. Dr. Luke in Acts 19 tells us that. A guy named Demetrius, a resident of Ephesus, and his craftsman of this little pagan idol was losing money because the Christians were now, or people were becoming Christians and not buying his commerce. And so he got really mad at Paul over those years and drove him to the Ephesus Theater. Here's a picture of the theater in Ephesus, in amphitheater. It seats about 25,000 people. It's quite an amazing sight. Uh, one of these pictures shows it in comparison to Wrigley Field, and you can kind of see just the size of this. This amphitheater, Paul was driven there to kill him. God stepped in. He intervened. Paul left for Macedonia, which is sort of north of that, and later... Later, Paul finds himself in a house arrest situation in Rome because he's preaching about Lord Jesus, not Lord Nero, and they arrest him of some things. House arrest, he wasn't illegal in in that regard, but they wanted to muzzle him. And so when in Rome, what do you do? You write a letter. Is the Holy Spirit moved Paul? (laughs) About 61, 62 AD, Paul writes this letter. He's moved by the Spirit. He's carried on by the Holy Spirit to carry out his assignment, his privileged task for this church. Paul started a lot of churches in the Asia Minor area. He kind of sees himself as sort of the spiritual father of those churches. And so he feels responsible for their well-being, for their protection, about unsound teaching, and about spiritual warfare that's going on against Christ and against his church. So I want to jump there, just help you understand a little bit more about some of the evil influences that are a part of this city. Uh, Ephesus is the doorway of Asia Minor. It's the capital city of the Roman Empire. Here's a picture of the Roman Empire, the New Testament world, very mammoth in its breadth and influence. And so you see in Ephesus imperial worship. Here's a couple of sites that are in ancient Ephesus where emperors had temples built for them and the Ephesian citizens and people in Asia Minor were to worship the emperor there. The city was a great place to get an education. Here's a couple of pictures of the Celsus Library very ornate. It was known for a lot of its books and research there. If there was a newspaper in Ephesus or Asia Minor, like the Roman Times or, or the Asia Minor Today, or if, uh, Ephesus Business Review, Ephesus was always in the top 10 cities to live in, to work in. Ephesus. It was the first of the seven letters or seven churches mentioned in Revelation 2 and 3. The order is significant. If you didn't know that, there are trade routes. These, this map shows the red lines that connect these cities in Asia Minor. Those are just major routes 
for trade, military, and Ephesus is the starting point for the trade routes. And so as the doorway for Asia Minor, theology and philosophy and military and ethnicity and spiritual realities, all of those things came through Ephesus into Asia Minor. Ephesus was surrounded by spirituality. You're going to get here. Bryn's going to go to chapter 6 in the next several weeks or months, but I want to highlight one phrase. He says, our struggle, what happened? Oh, oh, years. <laughs> He'll get to chapter 6 sometime. Maybe when BSU wins the, uh, the national championship in football. I hope they do. That would not be awesome. Here's what Paul says. You're familiar with this, I'm guessing. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against rulers and authorities, and he uses the word principalities or spiritual evil forces. Struggle is a word that the Ephesian people would have gotten. It's that Olympic-style hand-to-hand combat word. They saw these guys wrestle all the time. He uses that word. Our struggle is like a wrestling match. A couple of these words meant something to them. World rulers in the first century Jewish literature, world rulers were described as demonic powers. One Jewish piece of literature, a document, uses the term to describe an activity of 36 demonic spirits. Rulers was not just physical rulers. And he speaks of spiritual forces, sort of a general term for various evil forces. Paul wants to rattle and wake up these Christians to the fact that the struggle still exists now that they are in Christ. That struggle does not go away. In fact, the struggle takes on a bit of an increased nature. Jesus kicked the hornet's nest at the cross. He defeated evil one, but he is out to get the church, and he wants to wake those Christians up. The struggle here with all sorts of demonic spirits is an intent to bring Christians' demise, to devalue, to make you think you're not worth anything in your city. That's what those first first century Ephesian Christians would have been facing. The next verse in chapter 6, he says, in the day of evil, that you'd be able to stand your ground. In verse 10, he talks about standing strong or being strong in the Lord so you can stand and take on the full armor of God. Have you been heard, heard about the armor of God so that we can resist the devil's schemes? Bryn's going to detail that out for you. In the book, Paul talks about three postures, spiritually speaking, three spiritual postures that define who we are in Christ. In chapter 6, he talks about standing so we can take a stand like a good Roman military soldier on his outpost, keeping guard and alert. But that stance only happens because of what he says in chapter 2, where we are seated with Christ. Christ died, was raised back to life, and he was raised and seated in the heavenly places, and we in Christ, almost like sharers on the throne. We are co-heirs, and we live alongside, and we're with Christ, and so therefore we are seated with Christ. You're seated here, and you're seated with the King of Kings at the same time. And that seating actually helps us in chapter 4 learn how to walk a good walk, how to walk well, how to behave well, how to live well, how to survive by linking our arms together as Christians, how to overlap our proverbial shields like a Roman soldier would on the military field, like a cohort, like a battalion of soldiers to walk because we're seated and we can stand strong. 
We know in Dr. Luke's version of Acts, Acts 18 and Acts 19, that there's witchcraft, there's animism going on in Ephesus. Christians were, with transferred allegiance to Jesus, they, they still possessed. They had surrendered to Jesus, but they still possessed books, magic books. Magic spells, magic potions existed in the life of Ephesus. Before Hogwarts existed, Ephesus did. And I mean in a much, much darker, darker demonic way than you can ever imagine. And it was normal for them. It was very difficult for those Christians to let go of things that were identifying to them, valuable to them. It would be a place for them to have an uh, inclusion into, into the city. But we see in Acts 19 that they come out with all their magic books and they publicly burn them. They're tempted to retain them, but they actually let go and trust the lordship of Christ Due to the nature of gods and goddesses and curses that could be given or taken away in the spiritual life of the Ephesian, the whole culture was explicitly right in their eyes. It was saturated. It was dominated with this fear of evil spirits. And they believed that they were everywhere. Paul, he resonates with them. He knows it's a reality. That's why he says, that they can stand against these comic powers, these cosmic powers, and, and, and they can stand against the present darkness, and they can have these spiritual forces of evil defeated in the name of Jesus. He agrees with them. He can help them withstand and to be strong and to be firm. So a brief summary before we go further. In ancient Ephesus, first century world, when Paul ministered there in that city for three years, spiritual warfare was real. It was rampant. And one focalized point of that, one product of that spiritual influence was they confused gender roles in that city. I want to slide there. Men and women in ancient Ephesus were negatively influenced by pro-female deities in the New Testament world. These pagan deities, they patronized male leadership and they promoted a liberation and power for female leadership in society. Some today would go, oh, they're progressive. Excellent to know that, but you got to understand that by studying this book how real that was and that influence was. So let me highlight a couple of deities for you that were a real-life deal for those Ephesians. Here's one called the Magna Mater cult, Mater Maternity, a female cult known as the Mother Goddess. Kabil is her name, the Kabil cult. She is a dominant force sort of in the whole region of, of Rome, particularly in that in that uh, Mediterranean area of Rome near Corinth or near Philippi or Ephesus. Here's the legend of Kabil, mythological legend, okay? Not a real goddess, but this is something they believed in. The legend was she's intelligent, she is bright, she's beautiful, and she's very headstrong. She fell intensely in love with this mortal herds boy named Attis, and their love story grew tragic when he was unfaithful to her. And so she as a mythological god, drove him insane. He eventually committed suicide by castrating himself. Kabil was driven by mad, or driven mad by finding new love, and so she searched and searched and searched for love. And the myth of Kabil fueled the superiority of women in the Roman Empire in the first century, and in society, and in the church. The mantra was, devalue men. They are losers and they'll hurt you. So just don't trust them. That's a brief version on Kabil, but I really want to focus on the Ephesian goddess Artemis of Ephesia. She's more regionalized to Ephesus and Asia Minor. Here's the legend of Artemis. The Greek mythology served, uh, served as sort of a societal canvas upon which everything spiritually was defined. Artemis 
was one of the leading figures in mythology in the Ephesian worldview. She's the daughter, anybody know? The daughter of Zeus. Dr. Luke, in Acts 19, he describes Ephesus this way when he writes, Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of great Artemis and her image, which fell from heaven. She's famously known as the goddess of prosperity or fertility. At one point, a temple An enormous temple was built as the principal shrine for her worship. There's a coin here, actually. You can see the the image of the temple stamped on the coin. This was one uh, one one of the seven ancient wonders of the world in its day. Her divine majesty was worshiped throughout the whole province of Asia, Luke tells us in Acts 19. Pilgrims would journey throughout that area, and they would worship her. And as they approached the temple, they would sing, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Today, another picture shows you there's not much left. <laughs> there's, there's a pillar that's kind of been erected to kind of show you a little bit of how powerful Artemis is today. There's a famous statue of Artemis. It appears that she's multi-breasted. 1956, this thing was discovered. It's put in Ephesus Museum. It's there today. Her necklace around her was made of, of acorns from a sacred oak tree. Trees were stamped at the base of her temple. Her breastplate shows signs of the zodiac. Uh, uh, There are rows of animals representing fertility on her tight-fitted skirt, while while there are also bees on the sides. She's known as the mother bee, the queen bee, and her castrated priests were called drones. The worship of Artemis in this area began as a tree shrine, which may explain the reverse of this coin. Here's a couple of coins that show you the bee, shows you a tree, it's like a palm tree. Notice the Greek letters representing Ephesus. This is part of their circulation of currency, and it was clearly attached to Artemis. Artemis, the myth, not only impacted the Ephesian city, but the entire region of Ephesus, or Asia Minor. Incontestably, the Greek goddess Artemis of Ephesia, she was the most prominent and significant Uh, deity and cult in the first three centuries of the Roman Empire in that part of the world. The people of Ephesus regarded her in a covenant relationship with her, a divinely covenant relationship. As I already alluded to, she's intimately involved with the Roman imperial government and its, its constructs and the local government of Ephesus tied to the banking system of the Roman Empire. She is considered the most thoroughly saturated, powerful deity in the spiritually dark underworld of your hometown called Ephesus, is that, if that's where your driver's license says you lived. The cult of the Ephesian Artemis had a close connection with the practice of magic in the city. Six magical Ephesian letters, they're called, Ephesian letters, were inscribed on the cultic image of Artemis, on that statue. These letters were, were names, magical terms that contributed to magical spells. And if you uttered those names associated with Artemis, it was laden with some sort of a dark power such that it would ward off evil demons. It would keep them at bay. The goal of that, of that magical formula was to ascertain help from certain spirits and to keep the bad ones away One historian says this, magical beliefs and practices can hardly be overestimated in their importance for the daily life of the people of Ephesus. It's partly why Ephesus uh, had a reputation of something of a center of magical practices in the ancient world. One guy says that that's why Artemis was known as the one who would intercede for people, for her followers. She would intercede 
to ward off the cruel fate that might plague them. She is known and identified, get this word, she is called Savior. She is called Lord. Artemis is understood as the queen of the cosmos. She is great and she is holy and she is glorious in a fearful way. I think it's really interesting. Recent evidence supports the idea that she's not multi-breasted. Actually, what's around her neck are bags of magic spells, including those six Ephesian letters. An acquisition of one of those bags would allow you to have power. Does anybody know how many pieces of armor there are in chapter 6? There are six pieces of armor in the Roman soldier, and there are six character traits of God attached to six pieces of armor that Paul says, put this on and you'll stand firm in Christ. I, I don't think that's an, an accidental contrast to the six Ephesian letters. It is clearly a blatant contrast to say, who's Lord here? With that backdrop, did you get all that down? With that backdrop, Paul writes to those Ephesian Christians and he explains where Christ is exists and where Christ stands in relation to those power. He is superior to them. He is supreme. He's reigning far above all rule and all authority. And he also wants to explain, if that is true, then where do the Christians stand? Male Christians, female Christians, in relation to those powers. Where do we stand? With Christ. Paul sees Artemis influencing something far greater than some myth or legend would, while inferior to the great God-man, Jesus, the Christ, the Creator, the Redeemer, while inferior to him, she is a powerhouse. She is spiritually strong as an evil influence, and she's, she's got a dark voice, and it's creeping into the church, and they're listening, and the liberation of women, and the putting down of men is something that Paul wants to address. This male-female issue in Ephesus is spiritual bleeding into the church and he wants to address this she's greatly challenging sexual identity amongst those residents in Ephesus and Paul knows it just a summary before we get to some of the contents of the book itself as a result of this sewed together syncretized relationship between Kabil the more uh, the more holistic imperial female goddess and Artemis, the more regionalized one, with this tying of the two, this negative impact on male leadership in society as well as in the church was nothing less than, ins nothing less than significant. Here's the moral influence. Little girls growing up, they're being raised with this, in the shadow of Artemis' statue, and they're hearing that it's best to be single, young girl. Never ever marry, and don't you dare have children, and don't let any man have authority over you. The outcomes of that in the Ephesian context were the exercise of, of female authority over male authority in society. The, the elimination of male attributes in society, almost the neutering of male existence, presenting the male as effeminate in his attributes and promoting licentious morality of women and men. The male is to be ruled over and women are not to be submissive to his authority in Ephesus. This influence was demeaning, eradicating the backbone of men, fathers, husbands, little boys, removing the, the backbone of leadership in society, it became normal. And in Ephesus and in Asia Minor, it was normative for men to be weak, to be aloof. There were well-intentioned but maybe deceived women who were stepping in to take over the male role. And Paul wants to help them by appreciating that, but understand men, men, come on. 
In the civic affairs, leadership of men were absent. In marriage, leadership of men was absent. In, in raising children and in the church. Are you beginning to see a possibility of how this book might have application for our world today? This is a timeless book. It's an ancient letter. Blow the dust off and see the relevance of it for our world right here today in America. From that historical backdrop, we can see some themes surface. Christians need to be reminded of these, maybe for the first time to be taught these. Again, I'm excited for Bren and the leadership leading you through this. So let's turn our focus now to the book. That's some of the historical tapestry. Paul knows this church. He's been there three years. He's concerned about their identity in Christ, their existence, and their kingdom impact. He is concerned about them. And so right in the middle of the book, six chapters, right smack dab in the middle of the book, in the center of this, he kind of states a purpose. Here's what he says in chapter 4, verse 1. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling you've received. Walk in a manner worthy. There's our word worth. The Greek word means axios, and it, it means this idea of a scale that's got two pans. You go to the market in Ephesus, you've got to buy some, some flour for bread. You put the flour in this pan. How much do you put over here to figure out the equilibrium, what it costs? And when you reach equilibrium, you've reached axios. This is worth this much. What Paul does in this letter by putting that word axis right in the middle is he says in the first part of the, of the book, it falls into this pan. And the second part of the book falls in this pan. Let's, re- let's reach equilibrium. Who you are in Christ, your worth, your value, what he's done is in chapters 1 through 3. Now how you live, your behavior, what you do for him is 4, 5, and 6. And let's reach balance here. And when you do that, you walk your behavior in a manner worthy of the calling who you are. Are you seeing the beauty of that verse, how it kind of unfolds the whole book for us? So I want to talk about this pan for just a moment. In part number one, he's going to discuss God's blessings. In chapters one through three, he's defining who we are in Christ. Not you, singular, who we are, plural. Who we are in Christ. And then he slides into chapter 1. This is just my summarized phrase. These are not divine words, just a guy who studied it a bit. Here's my summary of chapter 1. We have a future leaning. We have a future orientation with a special blessing in Christ and, uh, and this glorious hope of an inheritance and an intimate knowledge. We are in the know. He's informed his people of what the plan is of God. Now and then, he says, we have this in Christ. Blessings. In chapter 2, he says we're new, a new creature. One time we were dead. We needed to be resuscitated because of our sin, and now we're made alive in Christ. And because we're alive in Christ, once we were strangers, now we're united members in this household. We're united together, Jews and Gentiles in the church being brought together. And then in chapter 3, a blessing of who we are in Christ is this responsibility. Here's who we are. We are responsible with this courageous gospel that Paul lays out for us. We're recipients of the baton he's passing us so that we would understand the mystery and comprehend the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of Christ's love so that he would be the surpassing knowledge base of who we are. This is who we are. And this is the pan. Why does God do this? He wants to demonstrate his grace through us. His grace is amazing. His grace in this unit of praise, in this unit of, of, of worship, his grace is what defines who we are. Chapter 1, we're sealed as a deposit for heaven to the praise of his glorious grace. In chapter 2, we're a community that's united 
in his breathtaking grace. In chapter 3, we are to demonstrate his grace by carrying out this assignment that Paul's passing on to us as he carries out his assignment. Why? To demonstrate his mercy, that you're worth so much. There's only one command. I think Bryn told you this last week. There's only one command in chapters 1 through 3. Remember is the command. Remember. Remember where you once were. Remember who you are. Why does he not stockpile it with commands? Because he wants to just build them up. He wants to remind them. And this whole section is bookended. As you read it, as you listen to it, listen for the words blessing or praise. Three times in chapter 1, blessed, he says. Three times he says, praise be. And then at the end of chapter 3, right before he gets to that pivot verse, he says, amen. So be it. Yes. Why do, who puts amen in the middle of a letter? Don't you do that like at the end? Before we go eat lunch? He puts it right there. One through three is one big doxological, that's a big word, the doxology. One big section of praise and glory and honor to Jesus and we're rightly defined in it. But that's one pan. In the scale of axios, we need to put ourselves in the other pan. So if we are this, then what do we do? So he's going to shift gears in the second aspect of the book. My theory is, is he wants to encourage the leadership of the church. He starts right out in chapter 4 talking about the leadership of the church. They have no backbone, and he wants to, to encourage them because they feel a bit beat up and they're weak. Their identity struggling. In chapters 4, 5, and 6, he's got 40 commands, 4-0 commands. He loads it up, and he fires it because as the church leadership goes, the church goes. He's going to talk about the leadership function. So I, in, in this, our behavior is, the, is where we want to go, how we're to live. I, I don't see this clearly cut with like chapter 4 and then a column for chapter 5 and then a column for 6. I see them kind of bleed over a little bit, kind of blurred over. So you have a section here that goes all the way through chapter 5, verse 21, about walking, about behaving as imitators of God, united as a growing church, renewing our minds, in Christ, putting on a new self and speaking love, walking as children of light. 521, if you notice on the screen, is my next column. 521 is, is used in both of those sections. 521 says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Out of all for Lord Jesus, submit, place yourself beneath. What's that look like in marriage? That's where he's going to go in the next section. What's it look like for a wife to submit beneath Jesus to her husband? What's it look like for a husband to submit to Lord Jesus to his wife? What's it look like in the parent-child relationship to submit to Lord Jesus? What's it look like a master-slave relationship to submit to Lord Jesus? How does that get played out? And that's that section where we learn to serve by the Spirit's leading in our life. And then the last section, putting on the armor of God. The whole idea of being strong, praying boldly to proclaim the gospel. Why? Do we do this? If chapter 1 through 3 is about demonstrating his grace, 4, 5, and 6 is demonstrating our obedience. It's very countercultural. I'd encourage you to come back for the next decade as Bren talks through this book. <laughs> but you just got to bear in mind, this is not a cozy book. This is going to stretch you and your obedience. Walking in him is daunting and challenging, and he wants you to understand, Paul does, that your obedience will demonstrate that you're in covenant with him. Your worth of who you are in Christ affects what you do. Any change in activity comes only after a change in identity. Find the equilibrium. You'll be worthy in Christ's eyes. Think about it. I don't think there's any way Paul could start off his letter with the armor of God in chapter 1 
if that's that important. I mean, it is, isn't it? Put on the armor. Wouldn't that be a great way to get right at chapter one? Hey, brothers and sisters, strap it on and go to battle. I don't think they could, especially the men. So Paul wants to reinsert their backbone into them. Here's who you are. The backbone is not yours. It's Christ's backbone into you. He'll help you stand erect. He is the one who defines you, reminding you who you are so you will stand bravely as a church. A couple of points of relevance that I think would be worth probing in this letter. There is a sense that the, the Ephesian church in Asia Minor and the American church today are synonymous. We can find some real points of relevance. Here are five. There's a real loss of identity in both. They don't know who they are. I think we're confused who we are. There's a sense of gender issues in Ephesus. Uh, we can skip over that. We get that figured out already today. No, there's gender issues, confusion today. There's a leadership vacuum in their church. There's a leadership vacuum in the American church, and the ongoing development of leaders is such an important thing. I see another parallel between this idea of the ignorance of spiritual warfare. We are in the dark, but there's war going on. I'm not saying look at every corner and try to find some angel or demon. I'm just saying be real and understand. We're in the battlefield together. And I also see that there's a confusion of, of what we allow to define us. We are confused by which voice we allow to define who we are. I see those five points of relevance. Your sense of worth about who you are is a significant factor for what you will do for Christ. So let's just end here. You're redeemable. You're repairable. You're restorable. Reconcilable. And your friends too. Your family, your roommates, they are too. But you gotta lose your, lo your life to find yourself, right? Lose your life in Christ to find yourself in him, to find that you are valuable. And so I like how he ends chapter three. Right in the middle of the book, he says this. It's that doxology. Now to him who's able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we can ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus for all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray with that in mind. Lord, we understand you are supreme and you are amazing and powerful and strong. Sometimes we feel really weak and really beat up and we feel devalued by what our culture says of us. So continue, please, to use your scripture, the timelessness of this book of Ephesians, to remind us that we would remember who we are, whose we are, that we would be brave for you, we'd walk holy for you. I pray that you'd help us to figure ourselves out. Bless this church, Lord, as they submit to your lead in studying this book to your praise, to your glory, to your honor. We all pray that. Amen.